To ship, of course. Time again for Build Engineering DevOps, Release Management, and everything in between. Welcome to the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter, and it's SoberBuildEngineer.com. Who's on the line with me for episode 25? This is Seth at CheesePlus on Twitter. This is Sasha at Sasha underscore D on Twitter. This is Yusuf at BuildScientist on Twitter. Can you believe it's it's already episode 25? That kind of blew my mind when I looked at the, the number. Wow. We, we've, Are we we've old also, now? Is that is that what that says? We bullshit it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea I had so much trash talking in me. <laughs> I have made up so many facts. <laughs> well, tonight, on that note of trash talk and fact making, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, should everyone on your ops staff have the keys to your company's kingdom, the production environment? Seems like the answer to that would be a no brainer. Yes, of course. But is it that simple? We're going to discuss that. But uh, first up, news and views. Our first item tonight that we thought we'd look at is a story on how the leap second bug caused Facebook to build a set of data center infrastructure management tools. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. But uh, the interesting item, I thought we covered the leap second bug, I think all the way back in like, epi- speaking of episodes, episode like one or two or something like that was one of the early ones. And what I thought was interesting about this particular article is that uh, I guess as part of their green initiative, Facebook monitors things like power consumption and that and various metrics about their data centers. But when the leap second caused their Linux servers to go into a loop, there's a statistic in here about how their power consumption went from like like 10 megawatts to 13 megawatts and stay there for five hours, which is like tons of money. Uh, and so, yeah, it is. Well, and I think I, the thing I was amused by is when you're doing hardware at that scale, we often don't think like if the servers aren't normally at 100% utilization, and normally they aren't, and then some bug causes them to go like into 100% utilization, that it's going to actually have a very noticeable power increase. I just, it's one of those things you never think of. I don't know. I, I, I was going to say, I think of this a lot because I've, maybe because I've seen disasters in which just a little bit of extra power consumption on maybe a bad rail on a, on a rack takes out tons of services. Um, so you want to, monitoring your power usage, if, if you're running at any kind of scale for physical hardware, it's, it becomes really, really important. Yeah. Uh, well, so. the, art- the article actually talks about the fact that they were, I mean, it, it was a good news, bad news thing. On the one hand, they were very happy because their data centers basically didn't skip a beat. So the thing you were talking about, because I've actually had that where, it, like, you have a shared rack and there's a circuit breaker on the rack and somebody's server goes overboard or somebody else's server, two servers get stuck or something. I've had that happen. And then the whole rack goes down because it trips the breaker. I, I, I mean, this was back in the day, like the late 90s, right, where it, they monitored all that stuff, like, super closely on... The, the late 90s, also known as the day. The day, yes. Um, <laughs> but no, so, so they were saying the good news is, is we did our capacity planning such that the whole data center didn't go out, but they ended up building these tools because, you know, they want to optimize for power usage and the green initiative and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I thought it was, was kind of an interesting article. Next up, we've got an article that Sasha pointed out to us that uh, the NSA is supposedly firing 90% of its sysadmin staff in the wake of the uh, Edward Snowden leaks. Apparently, uh, they realized that having thousands of people with top secret access to things may not be uh, the best I think the great quote there is, uh, what we're in the process of doing not fast enough is reducing our sysadmin staff by about 90%, which is, is sort of amazing. What do you guys think about this? I think it's hilarious. I've also heard that, I mean, I've also read that some of it to, to be, to add a slightly more reasonable or potentially reasonable spin to it is a lot of it's just budget cutting as well. I, I, I like, there's there's some of it, so there's, there's certainly some practical use. I mean, definitely... It's definitely reactionary at any at any degree. Isn't well, this what uh, what the uh, what these types of agencies call blowback could be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm just laughing because I'm thinking to myself, like, is uh, Ops Code or Puppet Labs about to get some? Like, it's like we fired all these people, and then you know you see one of the you know or or some other organization come out. It's like, oh, we got a. Forty million dollar contract from the NSA for one year. You know, <laughs> sort of. It's like we're we're going to automate the world now and replace. Dude, if I were a sysadmin for those for that organization, I would hope that I was on the layoff committee because or on the, on the layoff uh, side of things because do you want to be one of the last like five sysadmins left standing after they go through and cut everybody? That's actually a really, really good point. The other thing though too that I, I this was a big thing. I mean, in the whole Edward Snowden sort of drama was that the title sysadmin, right? Somebody was saying that he's a sysadmin. And somebody was like, well, no, he's a data analyst. So it's interesting, like, we don't really know what they mean by that term, sysadmin. Nobody knows what they mean. All they know is that there are developers and there's everybody else. Right. Well, it's actually, especially with government titles, a 
lot of those are just like stock titles. Like they don't actually have modern titles for things. So like system administrator may mean anything from systems analyst to programmer. It could be anything in between. Yeah. They're just, they're just like blank, they're just like silly blanket titles. Like you just, it just means you use a computer. Right. Right. Yeah. Instead of a typewriter. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Sasha. I would not want to be last sysadmin standing on that particular uh, environment. That would and be any sysadmin who is working for those organizations who gets laid off, that's great for them because there are all kinds of great jobs out there and they probably all pay better than the government. Yeah, or I'm sure that with a clearance and having worked for the NSA, they can get work in Anywhere. the government. Well, in the in another government agency, I'm oh, sure. Why would you want to do that? Well, some people like that environment. Okay. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna judge. If you like it, you go do that. I'll judge the government. <laughs> like working environment. I don't judge uh, people who want to be there, but that's weird. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, next up we have just a quick announcement. Putty 063 was released, and we're noting it mostly because Putty is the venerable SSH client on Windows. Of course, it's been around forever, super popular, and there was a security problem with it, so we just thought we'd note that. Uh, it actually has to do with some of the, the host key parsing code, so the problem is that you can just SSH to a host, and before the validation takes place, you can get pwned. So uh, everyone using Putty, you should definitely upgrade. We'll link to the uh, announcement in the show notes. But uh, put the new version on your thumbstick, your debugging thumbstick. And finally tonight, we have an article from Lucis talking about Go for sysadmins. He did a blog post on it talking about his experiences uh, with the new language. And it's an interesting read, especially talking about uh, sort of tooling and uh, in a sort of operations environments and some of those requirements. His post seems to suggest that uh, Go is going to become more popular than uh, Python, certainly, and maybe Ruby for this type of work. Did you guys see this article? I read yeah, it. He was, he was talking about how, you know, for, for himself, he, he, was, he was like, I mean, the very last part of it, he actually says this isn't a switching story. Like, for him, you know, his, his company or anything. It was just like, for him, he, he finds some a certain number of advantages from using Go, oh, both over C and then over scripted languages. You know, I will say one interesting thing about Go is that you see it popping up in kind of random but interesting places. So Packer, yep. right? Packer is all in Go, uh, which was um, interesting. At, at, C, at CD um, is, yep. in, is in Go. Docker. I think Docker is too, right? Yeah, yep, Docker is as well. And um, I was I was laughing because uh, in his post he, he was saying that um, Brian Barry attributed something to Lucis in a food fight episode. And I remember actually uh, the first time I had lunch with Brian Barry, we were talking about languages, and he was like, he thinks Go is going to take over the world. So it's kind of like this uh, weird full circle about this particular topic. One of the things that uh, Lucis brought up was that you can statically kind of compile everything, and he found a lot of value in that. I, what do you guys think? Well, I mean, you can can't you pretty much do that with any any, any language? I mean, well, okay, maybe not JavaScript. Any, yeah. any, yeah, so not excluding JavaScript. I mean, well, so the that, languages that he's referenced, Python and Ruby, you can you can do that with both Python and Ruby. Uh, on Linux, does anyone do that? I have. I've seen it on Windows. I've done it, I've done it with Python. Yeah, yeah so you, you distribute a, a binary? Yep. With all the depths? Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you say that, because I've never done that. I, I've seen it done on Windows for the reasons that people generally try it out. It's a, it's a pain right. to get everything running on Windows. So they, there's that win, what is it, Pi to EXE, or whatever it is, that does that. But that brings up an interesting point that you could do this with Ruby and Python, but it's like the ethos of people just don't do that. Well, um, it is being done, though, to a certain extent. That's what the Omnibus is doing. You know, I mean, so Sensu is distributed like that, and the Chef client is distributed with Omnibus. Yeah, yeah. I just mean it's interesting that Go was built from the start with this idea that you would take your Go programs and compile them down to something like that. You wouldn't run them interpreted. And even you though you... Run once, or write once, run anywhere? Yeah, well, I thought that was write once, debug everywhere. <laughs> But yeah, no, but I, I will say I, I see Go keep coming up, and he was saying he's going to look at it. I, I've got a, I've got enough to do, but uh, it's certainly it's something that sounds interesting, and I'll put it in the yeah, queue I of things to, to learn. I think, it, I think it's got a lot of potential. I don't think it's ever going to take over scripted languages for administration, though, because it's too... One, it's not as accessible, and two, having to like compile something to distribute it somewhere is kind of a pain when you're trying to write administration scripts. Hey, then you're coming back to my release engineering world. Woo! <laughs> well, I was gonna say for something for it to be yeah for for certain kinds of tasks, it makes sense. Um, especially like I do, I do really understand the pain of having like multiple versions of Python or Ruby and all the just the all the the kind of weird the weird hell that you can kind of fall into when you're trying to just manage the versions of something. So I, I see a lot of advantage in this again for certain types of 
system services. Well, and it is it is a very heavyweight solution to this problem. But on the other hand, I mean, w- you know, we had the episode about Ruby gems going down and how organizations like could not deploy because Ruby gems is down. Python has there's been a lot of discussion and blog posts about its sort of dependency management problem and that there's easy install and pip and like 48 ways to get your dependencies and it's kind of a pain in that world as well. I love Python. I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm just saying that Go kind of did a heavyweight solution to that dependency problem, period. It's like you have to compile it and you get this big thing at the end, but it runs everywhere. So trade-offs, I guess. Yeah, trade-offs. Yeah. All right. Well, next up, we're going to be talking keys to the kingdom, the prod environment, and who should get them on the ship show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. So tonight we're going to tackle the issue of production environments and who gets access to them. Should all of your operations staff have direct access to production? Uh, should there be any limitations? Uh, what are the criteria? And then, then, of course, as we look at sort of DevOps transformations uh, and this idea that maybe developers should be on pager duty and on call, should all of your developers have direct access to production? Uh, and all the time, part of the time, some of the time. I referenced this issue in my DevOps Days Mountain View presentation in the context of how there's certain skill sets in an operational environment that are useful. Uh, that presentation was sort of about air traffic control in the national airspace system. And so we talked a little bit about does everyone have sort of the skill set and the training to be uh, in that environment and be effective in that environment. Uh, and it was sort of a question that uh, I posed to the audience. And then that got Yusuf thinking. And so we thought we'd talk about it uh, tonight. So Yusuf, uh, you brought this this topic up for us to sort of look at a little more. Uh, what made you think about it? Yeah, you know, after I saw your presentation, um, DevOps Days, and kind of thinking about the firefighter presentation back at ChefConf um, this oh, year, yeah. kind, mm-hmm. of, kind of got to thinking, you know, what are, what are some of the qualifications, both from a soft skills and tech skills standpoint, that people need to work in production? I personally don't think that everybody should be working in production, especially if you, if you can't keep your, your cool on certain things. So yeah, I mean, it, it kind of got me thinking. And especially with your talk about the whole uh, air traffic control thing, I kind of got me wondering about, okay, well, the folks who are doing that type of stuff, you know, high stress job, that type of thing, um, maybe not nearly as stressful doing operations or stuff in production. But I think you definitely need to have a certain, like I said, combination of both soft and tech skills to be able to cut it. Well, so, the, you know, that's an interesting question. I'm curious what your initial answer would be to that question, Sasha and Seth, because th- this is one of those topics that uh, is kind of deceivingly simple, because I think a lot of people would say, well, of course you d- would put all of the op staff on rotation. So I'm curious, like, why? Sasha, Seth, what's your... Co- um, I have a story to tell, actually, Uh-oh. that has nothing to do with technology at all. That I would like to highlight the idea that one must have a certain set of of, uh, non-technical skills to work on production. And it goes back to a Thanksgiving many years ago when I was a teenager. (laughs) And uh, we had all eaten dinner, and then my mom and her sisters were cleaning everything up, and my mom did the dishes. And later, my grandma was like, what is this? These dishes aren't clean. This is terrible. You're never allowed to do dishes here again. Wow. And my mom was like, yes. (laughs) <laughs> right? I mean, so, so, so all I you have, have to do to get out of working in production with that rule is be a jerk. So I, I have, I think there are also two, there are That's also two. That's not my takeaway, but okay. Well, I want to really? talk about that. Sorry, sorry, Seth, I, think, I interrupted you. Uh, yeah, I think there were two, when, when Yusuf was, was kind of talking about it, there were two also, there's working in production, so maybe your your whatever your live code base is, and then there's having access to production servers, which may or may not actually be a nuanced difference in certain environments. Because mm-hmm. you may be able to work on the live code that shouldn't be touched, like your golden master type of branch, and deploy it out, but you wouldn't necessarily have access to the production servers. So I think, though, for production servers, in my experience, I think everybody should have access to them, both the developers and the operations staff. And I think more importantly, they shouldn't be told no if they break something. Everyone should actually have to know what to be able to navigate at a minimum level to do their own job and and, and be helpful to the team. I think that should be mandatory. Let me give you a counterexample to that. Um, It's not a Thanksgiving story, but it's also not entirely a tech story, but I think it's it's an interesting counterexample to this. 
they actually, after a bunch of study about cognitive science and sort of uh, operational interactions, they made this uh, policy change both for uh, air traffic controllers and actually nuclear power plants. And what they said was that certain management staff or air traffic controllers, they actually colored the carpets in the radar rooms different colors. And they said that certain management staff actually could not step on the carpet during a particular incident because they basically ran into the problem of too many cooks in the kitchen. And so you'd have somebody trying to debug a problem and everybody would swarm and that would make the situation worse. Same thing, uh, Three Mile Island, they had the same problem. And they oh, actually... God, well, what you really need then is to keep senior management off conference calls while you're trying to debug <laughs> Because that is the real problem. Yeah. So I agree with that, but let me give you the example of somebody who is responsible. They're on pager duty. They're responsible for production. They get into IRC and they say, "Oh, you know, I got a page, uh, you know, Nagio's page or whatever, and I'm dealing with it." And somebody's like, "You know, somebody else. Maybe they're more senior. Uh, maybe they've just been there longer." It's like, "No, no, I got this. Let me step on your toes," and then they make the situation worse. Well, no, no. So that's also I wanted to be clear. That is not. That is, so I think you have a valid point, but that is not the full that's breadth. Of, like, that's a process thing. You have people who are on call. Everyone should have access, yes, and everyone should be have traceable access. So you know when Jeff logged in at, through the Bastion host as opposed to Ted logging in through the Bastion host to do right. something. Okay. But you sh- it's no all, shared you should, passwords. You should, yeah, exactly. No shared passwords. Everyone's responsible for themselves. So it's all traced because you actually have some kind of like you know syslog stuff set up to actually track these interactions, mm-hmm. and then more importantly, you have a process. So you, only certain people, one dev and one ops guy, will be on call, or one you you have certain people that will be on call. But when you are on call, at least your first time, you should have a backup, somebody that can help you through the situation. Because if you just throw your hands up, or somebody says, "Oh no, we're not letting Jeff have hands in production again," what happens when there's a real problem and Jeff can actually help? And he doesn't have access. The, and I think that's a. It may be a cultural thing for an institution, but I think it's a. I think it's the good way, or it's the better way to do things. I I, I understand that, Seth, but I, I think the perspective that I'm coming from is more along the lines of, yeah, it is partially a training issue, but I've been in situations where, for for better or for worse, people just can't keep their cool in in production. And I have a story to tell. Um, one company that I worked at. We had a web server that all of a sudden started getting a lot of traffic, and a senior engineer on the team freaked out and said, oh, this this VM or whatever doesn't have enough resources. I'm going to down the VM and um, add more VM resources to it, and then it'll fix the problem. Uh, by the way, it didn't. It actually ended up causing more issues. But the point is, is that, in my experience, I found a lot of people tend to just panic and there's that aspect of, okay, you know, if you're not trained or you don't know um, what to do in a serious production issue, you can potentially cause more damage. I'm not saying that they should be banned from production, but just giving them kind of unfettered access to prod is uh, it's well, dicey. I think that comes back to a cultural thing still as well. If, if you train people to expect failure and you do fire drills and you do things to train everybody uh, and, and have a kind of similar bar, then you minimize the kind of panic of failure. If you're, I mean, if you're failing fast a lot, uh, that helps everyone get used to the notion of failure as a normal thing and to stop panicking. I mean, yeah, you're still going to have people with that, but I think that's still a, that's a cultural slash hiring slash, I mean, those are, I think there are ways to, to mitigate that. And, and, and obviously that's a, you know, a terrible thing if somebody like reboots, you know, a VM or something like that and doesn't know what they're doing. But I think those so should me, be infrastructure managed out in the the infrastructure, both design and and how people have access. That's that's my how so, I would deal with it differently. So let me sort of say something about this because maybe my intro was was a bad one because it got us focused on access. Because I actually have a question, Seth. I, I think obviously should everyone have access to production? I mean that's that one is kind of a no brainer. But from the standpoint of should it actually be that the people that are on call. It, we've discussed this on the show before that uh, people that have an engineering background have kind of a geeky background often have the um, the kid in the classroom syndrome about me 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 I know the answer and if they don't get called on they get angry or they you know they just want to like solve the problem and you know there's a lot of research that in incident problems like this uh, having multiple people in the environment where there's not a clear delegation of I'm on pager duty but Jeff 
may know this system better and he's around so let's let him into the gate so you know let's let him into the kitchen to help us cook the fish or whatever the pro you know that's a bad analogy but solve the problem with us as opposed to everyone can ssh in at any time and do whatever they want even if someone has said i've got this problem let me take care of it i i've worked in that environment where it's like i've got this and someone just goes in and now I, I can type the commands faster and yes that's a cultural problem and you should really address that culturally uh, probably, but is it reasonable to actually set up technical infrastructure that says for certain production machines, it's so-and-so has those keys and they can share, and I don't even know if this is technologically feasible, I haven't actually thought about it, but it'd be interesting, now, are you saying that that is too heavy-handed? You'd be setting up. You'd be setting up different single points of failure, in my perspective. You'd, you'd basically... So what happens when that system breaks? What happens when that system doesn't put the right keys in the right place? For me, that's that's a that's that's more of a you're you're creating a you're creating an unnecessary point of failure there. Yeah, but it was, that's so, how I feel. That's how I feel well, about. It. I, I I think you could design that system fine. I mean, you, you could. could but do... my, my point is, you're you're spending time also building a system that you don't really need. Okay, let's ignore that. Let's assume that <laughs> system. Let's assume that system works perfectly, which is a huge assumption. But let's assume that. The question is. Would that be something from a sort of technical process perspective you would agree with? And it is a question for the panel. Would you agree with this? Yes, no? I don't like artificial barriers. I think if you treat your people like babies, they're going to act like babies. Yep. Okay. Yusuf? I think don't don't prevent them from getting access to to certain data, but um, again, I mean, just it just depends on the, the situation. I think I really don't think that everybody should or, or needs to have access to uh, to production, especially in highly regulated environments. So, for example, I, I work in a highly regulated environment, and there's there's data. You know, I'm not going to get into detail about the data, but that people cannot have access to for legal reasons. Right. So certainly, there's a lot of separation of duties depending on whether you know you work for financial or healthcare and things like that. That's for sure. I mean, you can't have that. that those are uh, compliance regulations, right? And the way to cut down on the chaos that that sort of thing sows on your support teams and your, your production teams is to cordon those the, that infrastructure off so that only the infrastructure that is is has to be treated like that is being treated like that. It's interesting to me. I, I think I, I agree with Yusuf on this, that there is a technological issue to how you do this, but I have just been in so many environments where there's a cowboy developer that, or a cowboy ops person, doesn't matter, right? It, it's some cowboy, and you can reason with them and you can say, well, you know, if you do this again, there's going to be a problem, but it's at the end of the day, it's like, well, you know, he's too important to the company, so we just need to keep him happy, and he can step on he or she can step on anyone's toes they want, and we'll just put up with it. So the thing is, is that the technical solution to that aside, I think saying you need to treat this as a cultural problem solely, and you can solve it that way. I, I don't know that I actually think that that's a viable solution, especially in environments that are more mature and maybe not maybe larger. I mean, this is like a Dunbar number problem, right? Once you get over 50 people, you may not be in a position to sort of dictate to some other team what their culture should be, and they may be like, ooh, Wild West, right? Well, sure, That's sure, sure. That's another discussion we always have, and that is maybe you shouldn't be there. If, if it's... Yeah. <laughs> if this is a problem for you, and it would be for me, if somebody is constantly making a mess and not being held accountable for it, that is way different than allowing people to, to help support production and making accidental mistakes. Well, then let's back up. That's actually not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, let's say they're not making a mess, but let's say you have a direct line of responsibility in terms of there's a pager duty schedule, and so-and-so intermittently, maybe half of the time, randomly comes in and just says, I'll do it, and pushes you out of the way. And culturally, they're not willing to fire that person. Now, you could say... I'd like, that would make me unhappy. So, anyway, so, yeah, so no, you know, again, that's the whole... I, you know, this is a, still a cultural problem, and it's uh, a bad cultural fit for anybody who doesn't like that. And if the company won't hold people accountable for that kind of behavior, then maybe you should leave. Yeah, if a company wants to make dumb decisions, it doesn't mean that the, that the you know, kind but, of like... It. So, so it's funny, Paul, you mentioned that. It kind of reminds me of this Will Smith movie. Has anybody seen it? Hancock, there's a scene where he, like, lands on the beach and grabs a whale... 
that's beached and then chucks it into the into the ocean. <laughs> you know, he, he flew in there, did his thing, solved the problem, and then created some other problems. So right. I mean Well, and so here's the thing here here's the thing I often think too is we've sort of been talking about kind of painting this all in in a negative light. Uh, and the reason I actually just I find this topic fascinating, I've been doing a lot of like reading lately. It talks about the fact that if you go into a company and tell them, hey, you should do firefighting disaster training because it's not that you have good or bad engineers, it's that human brains, unless they are trained to deal with these sorts of events and react appropriately, are going to screw it up. And it's not that they're good or bad engineers, it's just by default we have a fight or fight response and that can often blow up in random weird ways. But if you said, you know, listen, we've taken, and this is my big thing, we've taken from aviation and nuclear power and all these other complex systems, these best practices on operators. And that's actually a term that I see being used a lot in the DevOps space these days, that operations people are akin to operators of physical infrastructure where there are valves and things like that. If you take that body of research, having something that actually prevents people from bugging the people that are responsible for debugging the problem is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not an indication that we're treating people like babies. It's not an indication of a shitty culture. It's just that we're taking this process and actually applying it to our process, which is it actually makes good sense to have one person responsible for debugging the problem, and either they're doing that or they're delegating, but you don't have two people in charge. I'm going to tell a quick story, and then I'm curious what your response to this is. I remember being in a situation where there was this was a, actually not an ops problem. It was like a release engineering problem in terms of we having to build infrastructure issue. And it was getting up to the level of like the CTO because there were problems with build on like a Thursday, and then it slid into Friday. And it was like they had there's a big QA push. They had everybody ready to test on Monday. So it's like, we need a build. So there was a, a bunch of meetings on Friday, and then it slid into Friday night. And I asked point blank from a managerial perspective, who is in charge of this problem? Who is in charge? of debugging this problem because there's some disagreement on technical solutions there's some disagreement on like what things we should tackle to get a build versus what things we should push off and work with QA to deal with on Tuesday or Wednesday and the answer came back well, you're both in charge. And that is a recipe for failure. Yeah. If two people are going to be in charge, if there's no clear line of responsibility, that's going to fail. So tying that back into, in some sense, yes, treat. I, I get the sort of pejorative of treating people like babies, but I don't know that that's what that is. It, well, it is I, I forcing people to follow... Sort of, you're talking about something else. I mean, yeah, I think you're talking about something totally different. Yeah. Okay, I'm missing the distinction. So, what? Why do you think that's different? I'm talking so, yeah. about people who are. So, you have on one hand uh, the idea that lots of people have access to production, and that's good. One person at a time should be in charge of solving a problem, but that shouldn't stop different parts of your org from having production access to their their piece of the the pie. Whether or not they are in there doing stuff is a whole other problem as to whether or not people have access. I mean, so one is a discipline problem and one is one is a culture thing. So everybody should have access, but not everybody should be sticking their fingers in the pie at the same time. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's, these are two different, two, like exactly what Sasha says. So this goes back to, and I was trying to clarify this earlier, This and this was my fault. I kept using the word access, and I, I think everybody should have I think the ops people and then, you know, the developers, as it makes sense, should have access to production. But then, then I guess maybe the question is the bit around how you coordinate the access. Maybe that would have been a better way to say it. Uh, Sasha, something you brought up, you were saying if people aren't being held responsible for their behavior in a staging or production environment. I wanted to ask all of you, is there something egregious enough in your opinion that that person would not have access to that environment? Is there something someone well, would be fired if that if it were that? Well, yeah, so let, let me ask. Let me, egregious. <laughs> well, let, let me ask this because because the common uh, quote that is always used is it's I've heard it with Henry Ford and I've heard it with IBM. I've heard it the quote about somebody goes and screws up some some million dollar contract sale by saying the wrong thing, and the the guy goes to the manager and says, "Well, aren't you going to fire that person?" And it was like, "No, they just they just learned a million dollar lesson." And they won't do it again. And I've actually had people say that on Twitter. It's like, no, there, there's a culture around people making mistakes that should be okay. And we talked about that here. So my question is, in a production environment, is there a single thing that's so egregious that you would throw that ethos out the window and say, nope, sorry, I, I, I don't... Willful disregard of, of something that you know is wrong multiple times. I mean, there's a difference between making mistakes and breaking things and doing things wrong on purpose more than once. So, I mean, there's a difference, and I think it's probably, even if we can't just say this is the thing, I mean, you know it when you see it. People who are just careless or, or I don't have the word that I want, 
malicious. Yeah, or you know, just willful disregard for what is what is important, and I think we know that, right? So people who make a mistake do things differently than people who are are willfully uh, just doing their. Thing. I think if you have a cavalier attitude towards fraud, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I mean... But yeah, I mean, I don't think you should be barred from it. I think you should be fired. Well, or so moved me, into a place where you don't work on that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if it's... I think people should be, like... People should be able to learn from their mistakes because if we make production this magical kind of, uh, you know, untouchable environment, then people are always just going to get cold feet. Nobody's going to want to work on or troubleshoot it. So I think that, that education is very important and teaching people that it's okay and also setting things up so you can fail in safe ways are all really important ways so that people don't get kind of really hung up on these things and that you don't have to fire somebody for making an ops mistake. Well, no, no, people, so that, that, people that should was, be allowed to make ops mistakes. That Certainly, yeah, but that yeah. was my question. So, yeah, that, that's all good, and, and I, I get that. I think that's a good treatment of the, the question, but I'm curious, is there a single thing that you could do once that's like, oh, my God, you should have it? known that uh, I don't even. I don't even care. For saying, there, I'm, there shouldn't. There shouldn't be a way to do. No. You shouldn't have a, a system no. in such a way that there's some. There's so. There's a way to do that. Okay. If there, that should be either processed out or that. That to me is something like if you set yourself up for that, that's terrible. And there are probably lots of environments, but I think those people would just be. Fi- if it was that egregious, then they would just be fired. I did work someplace once where we have tracking software for everything. We actually logged in using Opsware. And somebody logged in and did something and then lied about it later after an outage. Yeah. And I think they were fired for that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But you know, no, the- I, I don't believe that there should be any way that you should be fired for making a mistake. Otherwise, nobody will ever admit ever again what they did to break something, and you will never know what's ever happened in your systems ever again. Well, I actually referenced this part in my uh, DevOps Day talk to a little bit about the fact that I was talking about drift into failure, but I talked about the concept too that outages and accidents are chains. I think the one thing that is interesting to me that I, I didn't really develop the idea to this point, I think people that aren't competent to be working in the production environment, so let's say somebody does something that they really probably shouldn't be working in that environment. Maybe they should either be moved to some other environment or they should be dismissed or helped find a new role or whatever. And, you know, maybe they are incompetent in some way and they cause an outage. My argument would be that if they are incompetent in some way, they're going to be doing that on a day-to-day basis. And we've all worked with people where it's like, I can't believe you said that to me. And it's not not related to a production thing it's like you act like you're discussing a technical issue and it's like you should know this it's like this is one-on-one level stuff or whatever and then at some point in the future they cause an outage of some sort so my point is when you look at things like oh that person is not qualified to be working in a production environment they're going to be actually showing that in the staging environment and in the dev environment and in all the other environments and you have to be paying attention and be willing to be like you know what maybe this isn't the right role for you. Maybe that we need to find another role, or maybe this isn't the right environment, and we need to help. You need to move on. Uh, and there's a kind of thing like you can do that in a not jerky way, but that's, that's a tough good thing management, to do. right? I mean, yeah. a good manager should know this and be able to help somebody find a better role. And this, especially in large companies, where you yeah. will more likely see something like this. Well, actually, no, 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 even in small companies. So what's interesting to me about that is I am so often surprised at how long small companies will put up people that small companies, if they're VC funded, there's a whole like time, money, product kind of matrix about everybody really needs to pull their weight and it's a very kind of fast-paced environment, right? And it, it's pretty obvious often when there's somebody who's not pulling their weight. And for VC-backed startups, like that's the worst because you're dragging the team down and you're wasting VC money, right? right? Money that could be spent on something else. So I think it applies across the board. But uh, I think this is a question. We've all been in cases where it's like, I, I can't believe I'm still having this conversation with this person. Uh, what's going on? Uh, and so that seems to be sort of like a blind spot because it's a, that's a hard topic, I think, a lot of times. Well, and I've been at least one place too where um, I thought that some folks were just a little inexperienced or misguided, and it turned out that the people making the technical decisions, I just came to the conclusion that they weren't qualified to be making them, and I left because I was just <laughs> I just didn't think there was anything to be done at that point. I want I wanted to touch on some of the the soft skills that are necessary to be. To be, you know, somebody in, you know, who does day-to-day work in production and, and yep. dealing with some of those tricky scenarios. Because I've 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 worked at a bunch of places where 
see somebody with a you know fairly um, amicable you know demeanor, and you, you think that they're going to be okay, but then when they go into crisis mode, they transform into something completely different. I, I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, of being able to keep your cool. I mean, yeah, that's easier said than done, but I think that's something that's that's really really important because you know when you're when you're on the clock and you're losing dollars and cents because your website is down or whatever, some some people just can't handle that. And I think that there's there's training that can be done, but I think that there's just certain certain individuals that just they they're, they're not able to deal with that type of pressure. Let's not be in a team that deals with production. Well, so that's a good question. I, I wanted to actually get a little more specific on training and what you guys like, like what kind of training on both the technical side and the soft skill side do we think could help with that. But you bring up a good point, Yusuf and Sasha. Do you think that there is a place in any organization for an ops engineer who is never on call? Yes, an ops team that doesn't deal with anything important. What are they going to be doing if they're not on call? I, I, I think that I was being a little... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you. I'll, well, so so here's the reason I asked that question because let's say that an organization is enlightened enough to say, yeah, we put so and so on pager duty, and there was an outage, and they freaked the fuck out. They just flipped out. They kind of sat there shivering at their keyboard. They had a stress response. They, for whatever reason, doesn't matter. They could not solve the problem, and they froze for a half hour, and they didn't go and ask someone for help. They didn't, like, they just lost it. That needs but, mentoring. That is not a problem that you need to find him a new job or Wait, wait, wait. Let me finish. That's a mentoring thing. Well, let me ask. Is it? Because if you have certain stress responses, now we're getting into sort of, like, biology and biological responses, like stress responses to things. Um, so so, let's, so well, let, let's say, well, I'll give you an example. I'll give you I feel, a, like, I feel like you're trying to make up, like, a mythical unicorn of an edge case. That's no. no I'll go, I'll, actually, here I'll give. Let me, Seth and Sasha, let me actually give you a very good example. I have a very close friend who, when you get into a, sort of a stressful situation, he sort of totally loses the ability to deal with the situation. He panics when he turns into a screaming. Panics. I, I I actually say panic attack. And actually, it's funny you you say screaming. Because those are actually different forms of there's a chemical reaction in their brain, and I mean they they've shown this with MRIs. The higher reasoning functions just turn off. Now you could say, well, that's a mentoring problem, but I don't know how you're going to mentor sort of chemical brain changes, right? That's really hard. But say that they're great at automation, and other when they're not put in that stress situation, they're fine. Do you think that would be workable? Do you think other ops people Maybe that were on call? Maybe until they write automation for either the dev teams and stuff in the dev environment doesn't work and they blow up at dev people or, you know, until their automation is broken in production and they have to fix it and they can't. I don't know. I yeah. mean, I, I really feel like some a lot of this stuff is just... First of all, if, if you have people panicking and production fixing, it's because people are blowing things out of proportion on the management side. So I think a lot of this talk is about... Pressure, wrong pressure from from management and people who are trying to run calls and while well, people are trying to fix stuff. You know, I mean, there's nothing worse than trying to figure something out and talking with your peers on a conference call and having project managers immediately latch onto something you say and go, "That must be the problem," and then they start talking about it with senior management and stuff. I mean, that's true. Th that there are all kinds true. of things that that can put pressure on people that have nothing to do with them fixing a problem. So I think a lot of what you are talking about can be fixed by people not being not being pressury come from the top. That's a very good point. Yeah. So I, I have somebody who spent a lot of time on conference calls. <laughs> I, I have another story though, that kind of an interesting story. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just my my dumb luck that I've I've been um, in a lot of situations where I've seen the worst in people come out with production issues, but. Um, separate, different um, company or whatever than the last story that I referenced. Um, you know, real basic problem: had a box with an NFS mount. The box lost its mount, and you know, one of the admins that I was working with literally started to hyperventilate and freak out. And you just—that's. I, I mean, I, there's something. I mean, that's. I, I'm not. I'm not. This isn't. Yeah. I'm, I'm not over dramatizing this or anything. It, it, it happened, and I, I had to come in and say, "Hey, you know, relax. I'll I'll figure this out." I know. I well, just. I, I, but this and this is, this is like something that have been doing this for for years. No, so, no, no. So, so I actually, I, I want to say this because you were saying, Seth, you're, I'm trying to create some mythical unicorn. Well, I'm not, I, that was, was over-exaggerated. I just feel no, like no, no. I know, I know, and it's fine. No, no. But my point is, bus or whatever. Like, there's, there's going to be bad things that happen to people all the time. I just, no, no. I feel like I know. 
my my only all I wanted to say is that I actually think this is sort of a real problem. And the the one thing to to Sasha's point, I mean that that's a very astute point. I think a lot of times the pressure does come from not even necessarily above. I'm glad that you actually mentioned project managers because sometimes it's somebody on the call that there's some metric tied to their bonus, but they're they're not really in your reporting chain, and they're freaking the f*** out because it's like, I'm not going to get my bonus because the site was down below 99.999% time or whatever some weird metric is. And so they're not even relevant to this problem or useful or involved, but they involve themselves because there's a wrong incentive there. And, well, and senior management wants to be on these conference calls where you're trying to discuss technical things and it's very it's a big shutdown for trying to have a conversation because yeah. because you can't have a frank conversation and theorize about things when senior management is like, Oh, that must be the problem. Right. Right, there's a lot of that. The one thing I was going to say too, Seth, though, um, I, and I run into this a lot, there are a lot of people, and I'm one of them, that takes their role and their job very seriously, and so they stress themselves out, and I've been in this position. Like, when something goes down, and you're like, oh, I know what this is, and you go check that, and that's fine, and then you say, well, maybe sometimes it's this, so you go check that, and then it's not that, and you try a third thing, and it's not that, and then you're kind of like, oh, now we've been down for a half hour and more people are starting to come by and say, hey, what's going on? What's going on? And you're like, oh, crap, right? And, and then you start to stress yourself out. I'm one of those well, people. So, well, so I, There just need to be outlets and mechanisms for dealing with... I, I feel that these are all symptoms of companies setting themselves up if, if there's ever the case that that is made to happen, that that situation is set up, and you want to be able to avoid, I mean, this is just operations kind of stuff. Like, so that I feel like you should, these should be able to be mitigated all a lot by having systems to deal with them. Sure. That's, that's, well, that's, and, that's and, my... And I think, though, it's it's something that organizations need to think about at the sort of mid to upper management level, the cognitive science behind this stuff. And to Sasha's point about, like, having... Having the CEO on the tech call about the NFS amount going away may not be the best use of anyone's time, really. Um, getting to go away. Yeah. So I, I want advocated for like separate conference calls for management for statuses and for them to sit around and talk about whatever it is that management yeah. can do during these things, which yeah. is. Well, that makes sense, too, if you have someone who is responsible for debugging the problem and they are the sole person, then they can be that interface between reporting up the chain because they'll have the most accurate information. Well, and a lot of times, now, I've worked for a company who did management of production systems, right? So managed hosting and, and monitoring and stuff, and that's what I did when I was last a consultant. And um, what you have is you have some kind of, for that, you have a client manager who is the interface. And they set right. Up or, I mean, in the case of a company that, you you know, you just have uh, a manager or somebody like that or a BA who, who hangs out. You don't need six layers of management breathing down the necks of the people who are trying to fix a problem. And that really helps alleviate a lot of the stress. I mean, we've all been on these calls and been stressed, and I have said some things that not, I'm not sorry about any of it. But I have said some heated things on these phone calls because people are pressuring, and right. we all lose it. And there's, and there's also a whole there's a whole body of incident management research along with not just not just the tech industry, but there have been some great presentations this year actually about managing incidences and like electing mm -hmm. incident managers for things. There's there's a lot of that that takes into account this kind of cognitive science, and that's what what I'm talking about like setting up these structures. Like yes, you should have somebody like a rotating incident management response person in case mm -hmm. something does pop up, so you can expect failure, deal with it. Nobody has to panic. You want to you minimize panic at all costs, and and make it okay. And then everybody's in it together. It's kind of a, right. it's it's a much different psychological perspective than oh my god, I'm responsible for the failure of this product or site or whatever. Right. Well, so let me ask this. This is a good kind of question that sort of wrap this issue up. Yusuf, you started out asking, you know, talking about the technical skills and the soft skills, both for individuals and then actually kind of for organizations, because we've actually talked about processes, both technical and then kind of social or, or managerial on how to organizations to manage the stuff. We touched a little bit on that. And then we've talked about it at, at a sort of individual level. So I want to ask each of you, what would be your tips from sort of an education standpoint for the soft and technical sides and individual and organizational sides to help organizations and individuals be better at uh, 
not freaking out in prod. Yeah, so from a, from a tech skill standpoint, I mean, um, the, there's plenty of resources and stuff, but I, I think if you're working in operations, if you've never worked on call, definitely sit down with somebody who's seasoned and has worked on call and, and get an understanding of, uh, of what happens and, and watch and see what happens in, in crisis mode. Have an on-call buddy. Right. Yeah. Have an on. Have an on-call if buddy. If you're mentoring. Sure. Yeah. And and if nobody's mentoring you, then then ask to be mentored. Ask you know, especially if you. Then is a bigger problem. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would. You shouldn't have to always. You shouldn't have to be asking to be mentored. That's I guess. I, that's that's I would argue. That's. Well, I mean, there's some cases. There's that, a lot of organizations that just don't automatically. Or I'll give yeah. you a good example. I worked for a place where you had a mentor for the first six months, but maybe you didn't do on-call in your first six months. So that's not yeah. totally unreasonable. Just be like, hey, can I have a on-call buddy for my first three rotations, and if it, you know, or or have a buddy until there's an incident that we have to respond to, so I can sort of get the culture of how the organization wants its incident responses run. I think that's fine, and that's not an organizational problem. It's not it's not obvious that you would give people more mentoring if they had been there for two years but had never done on-call. Well, every right? on-call, every on-call rotation in the history of ever has a backup too, and they're not just for show right they're, they're there to to assist the primary if necessary yeah not just in case the primary is a no-show right but i mean in a, i i think yusuf's point is really good about there being a mentor i mean because the backup is if the guy is you know had a heart attack or something and you need someone to respond right but there's there's a lot that is sort of hey let's let's manage this incident response together that you can inculcate all of that cultural ethos that we've been talking about you know, the, you don't need to freak out. It's okay. All of that kind of stuff. I actually think that's a great suggestion. Yeah, and then on the soft skill side, I think Seth made a really, really good point about having an outlet. So whether that's oh, yoga yeah. or some sort of sports, whatever it is to do to kind of keep calm, I, I, I definitely think that's important. Keep calm uh, and prod on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, keep keep calm and what is it, carry a towel? Is that the... <laughs> <laughs> Sasha, what do you think? need to be self-aware and companies need to be self-aware and understand the kinds of people that they're hiring to do work and ensure that they people are are properly cared for in in doing their work yeah that's a good prop I like that phrase properly cared for uh, Seth so I, I feel this is a like a very like a systemic thing so first it starts with like making sure you hire people the proper way once you've hired them you first have them do shadowing especially for on-call on things, they don't actually, this isn't mentoring, they're not live, they're just shadowing everyone while they're on call. Until, so they see failures, they see how people respond. Then you have mentoring, which is different from the shadowing on top of that. And have a structure and have a, your architecture set up so that things can fail. And you know, you're going to want to minimize failure in any, just as any kind of system. So do that and then make it so that it's okay to fail. There's not a way that something can fail catastrophically, and if there is, then it's again everyone has to kind of come together and fix it. But right. it's trying to minimize that kind of minimize. A, I mean, if you have a blame culture, this is going to be a problem. Um, oh, yeah, so that's a bigger problem, right? Yeah, it's a bigger problem. So these are these things. I think a lot of these problems that you have in these instances, of which I've been in a lot, have a lot of the problems have been institutional and not the people. In the people who you knew in that very specific situation were probably all not the right people, but they could have been the right people had a lot of others change. You know, a lot of other steps been taken at different points in the you know the, the kind of life cycle of that company. Right, right. Well, the one thing I would say on the personal side, there are things you can do that will increase your ability to deal with incidences and stress of this particular type. So the story that I like to tell is I was a student pilot and I decided to leave the airport area, which you can do, and I was going over to the practice area that we, my instructor and I had practiced with all the time. And I didn't take into account that the sun was going down and I was going to be flying right into the sun towards a mountain and I couldn't see because I had sunglasses, but it was so bright, and I was, like, kind of freaking out. And I actually, in the plane, had a bit of a freakout because the tower was, was telling me there's traffic in the vicinity, and I couldn't see it because of the sun. And I was trying to get below the mountain ridge so that there was the shadow so then I could see again. And it was just kind of a mess. And the stress response that I had there was tremendous. And from a brain chemistry and neurology standpoint, very similar to the types of stress responses that you have here. But I had a, a moment where I was trying to talk to the tower and I was freaking out. The tower was very helpful, but I sort of had this epiphany that they're on the ground and the only person that can solve this problem is 
me in the plane. And so if I freak out and lose it, the situation's going to end extremely poorly for me. Not for the guy on the ground, even though he's very helpful. And that doesn't mean that I, I'm not empathetic to people that have stress responses for various things. Like I was having a stress response, but I was able to muster up enough to, to actively, okay, let's solve this small problem and then let's solve this bigger problem and get back on the ground. And it, was, and it turned out fine. But as I've done more flying, there have been incidences that kind of poke that stress response of, uh-oh, am I doing something wrong? This, this situation doesn't look good. And as you run into more of them, you are able to deal with sort of larger sets of stress problems. So they don't stress you out. Your, your, your bar for that stress response gets higher. If you don't like flying, I, had, I was talking with somebody who used to do uh, driving. They, they bought a like, fancy A4 and they learned, took it to a track and did uh, driving training. And so you kind of you were able to push yourself in a safer environment about how to deal with stress responses. Now, this isn't going to work for everyone. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. Uh, a lot of people like, to your point, Yusuf, you were talking about sports, a lot of people like ride their motorcycles, and that's how they kind of learn to deal with, with that sort of thing. So there are certain activities that can kind of push you in, and increase your skills on how you deal with stress. So I, I would say that there's that possibility. The other thing is from an organizational perspective and actually from an individual perspective is we talked about it a little bit here, but don't underestimate the cognitive parts of this process and that there's a lot of research where they put people in functional MRIs and look at their brains as, as they go through these stress responses. It's very real. Treating it like it's, it's oh, you're freaking out, just calm down, doesn't work. And if you think of it that way, then you're thinking of it in the wrong way. And it, there's just a lot of science saying that that has actually only really come up in the last 10 to 15 years. And so it's important to not underestimate that or forget about it. On that note, though, we'd love to open this discussion up to our listeners. What prod stories do you have? Did you ever work with someone that you didn't think should have keys to prod? Uh, no names, of course. And what are your thoughts on this? Are there other ways that don't involve motorcycles and fast cars and airplanes that you found to increase your ability to handle uh, stressful incidents and situations? We'd love to hear about them. Tweet us Ship Show Podcast, and uh, we can continue the discussion there. Uh, and we'll be back in a moment here on the Ship Show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we're going to do a review uh, of a conference that I recently attended. Engine Yard had their first ever conference. They called it The Still. Uh, it happened actually uh, last week on uh, the Thursday and Friday of the week. Um, and they had a lot of really interesting speakers and events going on. And it actually took place in San Francisco over on Treasure Island. I'd never been on Treasure Island. It, there's actually a winery on Treasure Island, so they held it there. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So they, they had some really super interesting keynote speakers. They actually had Nolan Bushnell and uh, his son Brent. And if that name is familiar, that's the uh, founder of Atari. So he had, they did a kind of a co-presentation that was really fascinating. And then they also had uh, one of the other keynotes was James Welton, who was the uh, co-founder of Coder Dojo. I had heard about them before, but the work they're doing is pretty amazing. They basically sponsor places for kids to come and learn how to code, and then they do a lot of, like, sort of just as an outlet of that, a lot of social interaction. So they'll have kids teach kids how to program and, and do stuff like that. It's, it's uh, super interesting. It was interesting to hear him speak. They've started a, a foundation to help him out doing that. And then uh, they also had Michael Lopp. A lot of you probably uh, know him as uh, Rands on Twitter. He gave uh, a keynote the next day, which was super fascinating. So yeah, it was it was a very uh, interesting conference in that a lot of the topics you there was a lot of sort of web dev front end. There was uh, a talk on CSS and optimizing your CSS. There was a talk on JavaScript, the real bad parts. Uh, so there was that, but there was also a, a streak of culture talks, uh, sort of talks that were sort of about, you know, squishier programmer stuff, which was fascinating. So uh, Shanley talked about uh, function and dysfunction in engineering-driven cultures, and she actually wrote up some thoughts on that to her and, and uh, put her slides up on her blog, so we'll actually link to that. Uh, there was also a, a history of women in programming, which was fascinating. I actually tweeted out, because I, I knew back in the recesses of my, of my mind that a woman wrote the first computer program, but I did not, I'd forgotten that, and they, they talked about this, that a woman also wrote the first compiler. I did not know that, so I learned something. I also made a joke tweet, which we'll link to, about Admiral Hopper that got like retweeted a bunch of times. It was kind of weird. 
weird, but it was it was funny. The other fascinating talk in the same vein is they uh, had a talk on open sourcing mental illness, and the speaker talked about uh, sort of uh, his struggles with that and got kind of uh, opened the door to uh, have a more of a conversation about that. There's actually a website they put together. Uh, there's a set of speakers that have been talking at different conferences. And Sasha, I th were you talking about the the RubyConf West, the depression talk? Yes, that was Mountain West Ruby, I think, and uh, somebody did a talk on depression. And yes. In our fields. Yes. So I will we'll link to that. But there's a website where all the people that are sort of talking about this, and he was on there. That's why I remembered it. You can. Well, they have like resources, and they have the talks up, and you can look at them. Uh, so that was actually, uh, you know, super fascinating too. So yeah, overall, it was a real eclectic set of topics. Uh, super fascinating. Uh, super fun, really engaging group, uh, an engaged group. The party was at the Old Mint down uh, in San Francisco, the Old Mint, which was weird to see like this huge building that looks like a library, but it's all out of granite, and they used to store like gold there. Sounds like fun. You know, I actually, I read Rand's blog, but the only thing I remember about him reading recently is a post he wrote a few months ago on how business cards are stupid and how nobody should need them, and I'm like... Dude, when I go to conferences and I collect business cards, it's because there are 500 white guys and 10 women. And, uh, <laughs> if I don't have your business card, I don't remember who you are later. Yeah, I I, uh, I will say this. I've seen Rand speak at a couple conferences. I always love what he has to say, and I don't always agree with him on his blog. I think his books are great. The two books he's, he's written on, like, engineering management. You should go read them even if you're not a manager. There's a lot of good perspective in there. How was the food? So what were you eating? <laughs> they did one thing with lunch that I thought was a really interesting conference hack. The food itself was great. So what they did is they put together these picnic boxes, and you would get in line, and you'd pick up a box, and the box was enough food for six people, and they forced you to go eat with six people. And they said, like, you know, they tried to say, well, don't eat with people you've come with. Yeah, try to mix it up. And so after... The first quarter of the line has made it through. There's a bunch of tables out there with, you know, that may have three people and there's six people that can be served by the box. So they're like, come over to our table because they have food, right, for you. And so the, the the picnic boxes have individually wrapped things and they were delicious. But uh, but I just really like the uh, forcing people to sort of network. You know, a lot of conferences is like get in line and get the, you know, the food on your plate and then go to the table. And, we you know, I remember this at the, the conference. We were all there. It's kind of like, okay, I'm going to go find my friends because it's, it's got a bit of that junior high school lunchroom vibe where you're like, where are my friends? But this was a way to sort of break that. And that was refreshing to see that sort of conference hack tried. And and I ended up sitting with people I, that, uh, let's see, went from Alabama and somebody from Kansas City who was a college student just starting there. So, yeah, it was good. Um, so, Paul, tell us about the, the history of women in programming. Tell us about that. The interesting thing about that talk, and, and uh, I'll have to see, I, I mean, I hope the slides get posted uh, somewhere. They they said a couple things, the the two women that gave that talk. They said this was the last time they were giving that talk. And I don't, I don't know why they wouldn't give it more. I guess they'd given it a bunch of times. I, I think the most fascinating thing about it was that they showed this famous, uh, well, there are two things. They showed this very famous advertisement that was in, like, Time Life, and it's talking about... You know, now that now with the ENIAC, whatever, we can figure out blah, 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 blah. And it's, it, I'll try to find a picture and link to it in the show notes. But it's a picture that is has a guy standing at a terminal and he's like looking at the tape roof, so whatever. And they show the rest of the picture. The room is full of women programming it, but they crop them out for the wow. ad. And that that was like a, because I, I, I'd seen that ad before. It's a very historic ad that they always show in like museums and stuff. And I was just floored that they purposely cr cropped all the women out. The other thing is they showed an ad that, that kind of actually blew my mind. It was uh, Remington Rand Corporation, I think. And, and it was an ad for one of their big vacuum tube monstrosities. And they basically said, the ad read, what's better than 16 legs, 8 yapping tongues, 8, uh, you know, whatever, fingers, what? I mean, it was just this very derogatory. And the point they were trying to make is, this big, you know, vacuum tube monstrosity can replace eight of your secretary programmers, which was another thing that they sort of touched on, that they tried to say, well, once the professionals get involved, then your secretary can program, right? And then they actually talked about Admiral Hopper and COBOL, and that's actually how she came up in the presentation. But they were trying to point out that, like, we have a new compiler, so 
you don't need these eight women that you would use to do this programming. And it, but just the way they referred to it was very nineteen early nineteen sixties Mad Men. It was like like everybody in the room was just like, really? That was their ad. So that was that was kind of fascinating. So yeah, I would definitely if, if you do a lot of front end web dev or you are interested in sort of uh, a lot of the the soft skills that are starting to be talked about a lot of conferences. This was a great conference held in a great location, and I'm pretty sure they're already organizing next year. So take a look at it. On that note, actually, related to conferences, uh, I wanted to mention that Nathan Harvey from uh, OpsCode sent a discount coupon for public chef training after the last episode we were talking about it. So, ship show listeners, you can uh, go to opscode.eventbrite.com, put in the code SHIPSHOW, and it will give you 10% discount on public chef training stuff if you're interested in uh, taking some chef training and seeing actually how they do their trainings. So we wanted to mention that. We've got some really super interesting stuff coming up. Actually, uh, we got Puppet Comp coming up, so we'll be covering that. And uh, so, yeah, we've got some cool stuff coming down the pike. So uh, stay tuned for that. From San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Minneapolis, this is Sasha signing off. And from Austin, this is Seth signing off. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks.